three, two, one. Happy February, everyone. Welcome back to Big Friendly Sports. Just a couple of weeks away from the NBA All-Star Game, uh, coming right up on the trade deadline. Fun action happening in the NBA, but a little bit down the road, there's going to be an MVP conversation, and there's some big news this week that is shaking things up on that front, and it could have an impact on a certain guard in Oklahoma City. So today's guest is going to be Brett Dawson, also with Sellout Crowd. Brett and I have obviously worked together for a very long time. And uh, we love getting together and talking about who. So before we get started, big thanks to MidFirst Bank for sponsoring this show. MidFirst Bank, true to you. All right, let's bring in Brett. Brett, uh, so Joel Embiid has a knee injury. We still don't know exactly what all it entails at this point. Um, it's, it's a little vague. There's some information that came out that probably wasn't supposed to come out. But it looks like it's going to be an, an, an injury that at a minimum – is going to remove him from the MVP conversation because it will cause him to miss so many games that he does not play 65. So uh, what is your sense of the MVP race just even before all of this? And yeah, what does this mean for Shea Gilgis-Alexander? Yeah, well, I think the first thing, John, first of all, I'm happy to be here. I love a crossover episode, which is kind of what we're doing right now because um, we'll, we'll, full disclosure, we will get together on on my show here shortly as well. Yeah. Um, so. I think my sense of the of the MVP race is that Joel Embiid is probably out of it. And also Joel Embiid was probably going to be out of it anyway, even if there hadn't been something put into the collective bargaining agreement that said 65 games is the minimum. You've got to play 65 games or you can't be the MVP. Well, guess what? There's at least two incredibly strong MVP candidates. One of them plays right here in Oklahoma City, Shea Gildas-Alexander, and another one plays in Denver, Nikola Jokic. And those guys are having great years. And if they continue to play at the level that they're playing and they play a bunch of games, you were probably going to get disqualified anyway by not playing 65 games because those two guys are so good that probably that was going to end up being a tiebreaker. And so if you were at 60 games and those guys were over 70, you probably weren't going to be in the mix anyway. To me, the big 65 game thing, I think it's a little more meaningful for all NBA where there's 15 slots. And I think people are a little less likely to knock you for playing, let's say, 64 games. Uh, I think an MVP would have had a hard time winning that award regardless. So I do think the fact that he's not going to play the games and he's going to almost certainly be out of the running is meaningful because it moves the other two guys up a slot. I don't think it's especially meaningful because of the rule. I think that was probably just going to happen regardless. Looking at the rest of the season, you know, MVP awards can be largely narrative-based sometimes. There's people that get voter fatigue, even voting for a guy in back-to-back seasons sometimes. Or, you know, it's almost some people will justify like, well, it's someone's turn to win the award. Um, I'm just kind of, I'm curious, can you think of anything that might help separate Shea from Jokic? Because, I mean, when Jokic plays, he's otherworldly. Um, and he's obviously won the award a couple of times. And, and he's got all these accolades. Uh, how could Shea separate himself from Jokic if it does come down to what we're thinking, where these might be the two candidates at the end of the season? Yeah, I think, and I, I do think it's them at this point. It doesn't mean that that, we, that that race can't expand a little bit. I think it can. Um, Giannis, if, if the Bucks really get going, I think there's an opportunity there. But I think if it comes down to these two guys, the, the crux of your question, I think you're looking at the, the wins. So can you separate yourself by a few wins over Denver? Can you place 
at least one spot, if not two spots ahead of them. Can you win the West, which I think would probably be maybe the ultimate tiebreaker. If both these guys are really, really good the rest of the way, and there's no reason to think they won't be. And the Thunder is the number one seed in the West. And let's say Denver is third. Let's say the Clippers jump them and Denver falls to fourth. Then I think you're really looking at a situation where that combined with, you mentioned voter fatigue. And I think, you know, the flip side of voter fatigue is just freshness. This idea that you'd get something brand new. You'd have this out of the, you know, bolt out of the blue kind of conference win for the Thunder top seed win. Uh, and the, the poster kid for that would be Shea Gildas Alexander. And so I, I think, that's probably his best case is like keep winning and maybe Denver wins a little less. Today's show is also sponsored by the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, America's premier institution of Western history, art and culture and fire like jobs. If you're looking for a new career or to advance in your current one, join the largest employer in Pottawatomie County, Fire Lake Jobs. So, Brett, let's go back and talk about that 65 game minimum, because that has been a talking point lately. And there is some misunderstanding on kind of the origins of it, I think. Um, I think it's important to kind of step back and understand, A, why do we have this thing? And B, why is it a thing now to begin with? Well, what's funny about it is it has been a thing since the summer, whenever they announced it, you know, since the since the, the CBA was announced. It's odd that the players seem to just be figuring out that this is not to their benefit. Uh, it's kind of a strange thing that suddenly there are people saying like, well, this is a bad idea. And the thing is that it was a negotiated idea. And so it was a thing that I don't know if you had a chance to not have it as the Players Association, but you certainly had a chance to debate it. You certainly had a chance to go back and forth over it. Um, they really didn't. And for, I think a lot, I think it, it exists, John, for a lot of reasons. Um, I think the main one is it exists as a, look, there's money involved in all this, right? There's always money. It always, right. there's, there's part of the thing. And I'm not somebody who's a big fan of uh, awards that people, particularly the media votes on being used to determine money, being used to determine bonuses and, and uh, max contract amounts. I don't like that. There's definitely, definitely a money element to this. There's also, I think, a protection of the regular season element to it. Um, this was, without question, it was designed to limit some of the rest, some of the healthy rests that we've seen from teams. I don't want to say it was targeted at the Clippers, but it was targeted at the Clippers among some others um, to just get these guys in games in the regular season and try to not have that product become such an afterthought where it's like everything is getting so aligned for the playoffs that you're essentially sending a message to fans like you don't need to worry too much about what's happening in January. The rule was not designed to we need injured players to take the floor. I mean, that that was Correct. not the thought process in this. And and some people have kind of ventured into that territory. Um, and, you know, Joel Embiid is he's just an injury prone player throughout his career. and. You know, the optics are not great this year when he's probably legitimately injured and unable to go in Denver. But if there were previous instances where he rested against the Nuggets in Denver, that's that's going to snowball a little bit. And, you know, I, I think it's reasonable to think that maybe a, a nagging right knee injury causes more stress on other parts of the body and might have contributed to suffering yet another injury on the other side. And, you know, but the rules were not about. Get yourself out there when you're, you know, 75%, drag yourself up and down the floor to entertain the fans. I think you're exactly right. They were really targeting 
load management. And let's be honest, when you talk about money, there's TV negotiations coming up. And TV partners, I think, want to ensure if they're buying a product that they are getting the featured players as part of that product, right? A hundred percent. And I mean, like, you know, a friend of mine texted me last night, shouts to my friend Nick, and I think anecdotally, this certainly seems true. The TNT games have not gone well for TNT this year. It just seems like it's been kind of a series of bad breaks on Thursday night. And that's Mm -hmm. not every game. But if you just looked at last night, you know, your late game, Tyrese Maxey has 51. That's super fun in Utah. But you're supposed to have Joel Embiid in that game. And then, you know, in the early game, you get a Lakers win in Boston, which was, you know, I'll full disclosure i wasn't watching i was watching uh nick's pacers um but you got a fun game but you got a game in boston without lebron james or anthony davis those weren't healthy rests those guys have been dealing with a lot of stuff well i'm not going to say they weren't those guys have been doing a lot of stuff they've been listed as questionable a lot and played they didn't play against boston whether that was strategic or whether those guys really couldn't play i don't know but the thing is you were getting these things far too often where you were getting some late scratches, you were getting the Saturday night game was getting stepped on, you know, by late announcements of of rest. Uh, and injuries are one thing, and rest is a whole other thing from a TV product standpoint. And not just the TV product, you mentioned that it is a huge piece of this, but it's also been a thing for you know fans purchase tickets, and like we aren't the people that have to field the phone call that a fan calls and says, "I bought these tickets six months ago," and then Paul George didn't play because. They just decided to rest him, and it's the only time he comes back to Indiana, for example, or whatever. Uh, and so all that stuff matters. The NBA is not trying to get unhealthy players out there. It's the most player-friendly league in the in the U.S., certainly, of the major sports leagues. It's the most player-friendly. Um, but yeah, they, they need the players out there to play, and they need to to not from a TV perspective, a TV contract perspective, they need to not dismiss the regular season in ways that I think the regular season has been dismissed lately. It, this is a a bit of a curve, but I mean, is, is this something that is just, you think like maybe this generation of superstars that have kind of learned to pace themselves over time, sort of learn the business, like, Hey, I need to work a little bit smarter you know, I hate to go back to back in my day, Brett, but, you know, we used to like Larry Bird would say, like, these guys, you know, work hard and, and buy tickets. And we we owe it to them to come out and play. And I'm not saying that today's players don't feel that way to an extent, but I do feel like there's a little bit of, hey, I need to make sure, you know, I maybe I extend my career another year or two if I, you know, strategically buy into some of these plans. Do you think that is just, you know, this kind of current generation of players and, and the NBA is pushing back on that, that we could go in the other direction as as the next group of superstars rises in the league? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because I, I do think there's something to what you're saying about the generation of players. I remember, do you remember a couple of years ago, there was a big uproar, more than a couple now, but a few years back, there was some uproar about Derek Rose saying, I want to be able to walk when I'm older. I want to be able to like yeah. spend time with my kids or whatever. And I need to think about my long-term health in addition to this. And I, I do think probably there is some of that with this generation of players that they think a little more long-term. But I also think, and this, again, you talk about anecdotal. I don't know this to be true at all. But if I was positing a theory that you might want to you know, dig into and find out about, I just wonder how much the idea, the rings culture, R-I-N-G-Z-Z-Z-Z-Z culture, the idea that really winning it all is all that matters and that you're going to be judged by Jordan had six and LeBron now has four 
and Charles Barkley never got one, and they're going to talk all the time about this hole in his legacy for never having won one, and Kevin Durant had to leave one team to go to the other team to guarantee that he got one, and then he's had to move around a couple more times to get them uh, or to get to, you know, to pursue them. I think the idea that you're only going to be judged this way has changed because while we certainly in the, back in the day would say, well, Charles Barkley and Carmelone and Patrick Ewing are among the best players who never got one. Uh, I don't think it was these guys suck because they didn't get them. Mm-hmm. And I do think there's some of that now in a way that the, and it, it comes from sources that the players are just so directly exposed to. It comes from social media. It comes from fans directly telling players Hey, you didn't win enough. You don't have Jordan has more rings. LeBron has more rings than you, and Jordan has more than LeBron. And I do think that that dialogue uh, probably impacts some of this. And granted, the game is different today. I mean, people still think like the '80s and '90s; they just clotheslined each other on every single play. Um, you <laughs> yeah, know, it's but, just but it's mix, a different. Really. <laughs> it, it's a different set of stressors in today's game. I mean, Brett, you and I go to games, you know, a lot, and we can see. You know, just the, the the stop start action that these guys have to do, the, you know, sprinting from one side to the other, come to an abrupt stop. And then, you know, there's a lot of torque that's put on these guys that I think may not have been as significant. It was a different kind of like physical toll back in the day than I think it is today. And, you know, I just think like a guy like Kawhi Leonard back in the maybe the 80s or 90s, maybe his career is cut short because you know, we don't have the medical technology and he didn't have the ability to sort of pace himself. And so, you know, I I can definitely see that point of view and I can also see the league. And by the way, the league came out and starting like, you know, started to distance itself heavily from a lot of these studies about load management, uh, coincidentally, as they're negotiating a TV contract. (laughs) But, you know, again, all of these factors go into why they put this into the CBA, why the owners and, and players agreed to it. And you know, some of the arguing about this is pointless, but but I think it's kind of interesting to to talk about the origins of it all. Yeah. By the way, as a total aside, and and this is one of those things where I wasn't prepared to talk about this, so I'm going to butcher this a little bit. I think it was Dan Devine uh, from Yahoo on his Twitter account, Your Man Devine, and I think I don't remember which of the guys he compared. He just basically took a screenshot of one of the guys who was going for sixty or seventy last week. I can't remember which of those guys it was. And then a shot, a screen grab from when Kobe was going for 81. And to look at where the defenders are, essentially they're all in the lane as Kobe's going for 81. Everybody's in the lane. All the other nine players who aren't Kobe Bryant are pretty close to the lane. Uh, Whereas now nobody is close to the lane because that's not the way the game is played anymore. The game is far more spread out. And because of how how much more spread out it is, you know, I remember talking to Paul George once about he always thought the toughest thing as a defender in the NBA, and this was a thing great defenders didn't used to have to do quite as much, this idea that you would have to close as hard as you could to a guy who could shoot, and then you'd have to adjust your body to backpedal when he attacked your closeout. And the, the best defenders in the NBA are good at both of those things, both good at closing out to a shooter and limiting what he sees as a, from a look perspective, but then being able to use their hips to get back quickly and keep that guy from blowing right by them because their momentum is carrying them out to him. And that is a thing that is, when you talk about torque, that's the thing you got to do every game in the NBA. And you got to do it at, at six, eight, and you have to do it at seven foot. Um, you have to close and you have to be ready to attack a close. And so like the movement, the way you plant your feet, all that stuff has changed so much. And I'd love to know, I don't think this data exists, 
you know, the NBA will tell you how many miles a guy moves and how much a guy runs and, and how much ground he covers over the course of a game. I'd love to know the comparison between that and when Michael Jordan was being guarded by like accountants scoring 63 <laughs> points against the Celtics. <laughs> yes, the accounting firm of Ainge and Johnson and uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Carlisle and company. Uh, good times. I Again, I think it's really interesting to, uh, again, to explain why this is in place and, you know, sort of how the game has changed and, and why we're why we're here to begin with. So uh, I want to thank uh, also for this show, Oklahoma Ford dealers for their sponsorship. Driving to your best in Oklahoma Ford dealers today for the best deals on Ford's full lineup of trucks and SUVs. Ford is the best in Oklahoma. And also a thanks to Brett Dawson for joining me for this show today. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for watching. If this is your first time, please hit the like, please hit the subscribe. Helps us out a whole lot here. And, uh, you know, check out Brett's content. Check out everyone else at Sellout Crowd. And behind the scenes, we have Jacqueline Musgrove. We have Michael Lane. We have Mike Sherman. We have a whole crew of people at Sellout Crowd that make this show possible. A big thanks to them as well. Until next week, everyone, take care. Talk to you soon.